Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. chapter at the 38th verse, and we're going to look at two different passages today. Uh, the first is going to be the text from Matthew, the sign of Jonah, and then we're actually going to go back to Jonah and visit what happened to him and provide a little bit of context to this story and hopefully provide a little bit more uh, understanding to the text. It's a pretty straightforward um verse that Jesus is giving us here. So there's not, you know, a whole lot of like hoops or anything that we have to jump around through, but we are going to uh, work ourselves through verse by verse and continue talking through Matthew and how Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and the scribes and and his disciples as well. So here we go. Uh, Well, let me say this again before we get into the text. Um, If I come up short on these episodes in terms of the time, like the 30 minutes. Um, that's okay. I, I, I'm not going to hold myself anymore to time confinements to the show. You know, I've gone from an hour. They were really good, really popular. But it was a lot of context to sift through. Shifted it down to 30 minutes. It worked out really good. Um, and, and I'm still probably going to aim for that, but at the same time, I don't want to continuously over, you know, just like pile in the, 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 the context that we're dealing with. And so if I have, you know, two sections that I can actively give the appropriate amount of time to and keep it in that 30 minute window, we'll do that. But if one topic takes up more than 15 or 20 minutes, then I'll probably just go ahead and cut the show. So I just wanted to give you that little bit of a precursor just because you might start seeing shows that are in the 20-minute mark range. If it doesn't matter to you, great. If if you're like, oh, I'm, you know, 
would prefer the 30 minutes, feel free to let me know. We can always shift them out again a little bit. But I think this format works a little bit better and uh, allows us to really focus more on the context. So uh, let us dig in to Matthew 12 and see what we have for us today. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So, some interesting things that Jesus is telling us here in this little passage when he's being asked to give this sign and, uh, you know, let's, again, provide some context and dig into this. Uh, this is a uh, continuation of what Jesus has said in the previous sections of chapter 12. And he's gone through all of these different teachings. And now uh, there, you know, probably a slight break, if you would take that, uh, from our passage last week with the trees known by its fruit. You know, Jesus is probably gives that statement, ends his kind of little teaching session, but the Pharisees and the scribes continue to prod him. And they're looking for a sign. They want something that they can say is tangible enough to fulfill the words that Jesus is currently saying. Is this really from God or is this something you know completely out there? So the Jewish legalist, legal scholars asked for more compelling evidence, more compelling miracles to verify Jesus' messianic claims. The healing of the demon-oppressed man was not sufficient for them. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. So the Pharisees and the scribes continue to poke prod and, and try and get Jesus to do something that Jesus isn't obviously going to do, because in their eyes, the healing the miracles that he's performed, the demons that he's cast out, the preaching and teaching that he's done is not sufficient enough. And, and I would venture to say the Pharisees and scribes end up to be like the atheists today or those who are not believers in Christ. When Jesus returns and the skies shatter open, they will still not believe. And it's interestingly enough because they'll sit there and go, well, if you know God truly existed, then he would reveal himself to us. Well, he does, and he has, in the form of Jesus Christ. And we killed him. So, what does that tell you about mankind and our current uh, situation in this world? When the reality we face is that no matter what signs we can demonstrate to the unbeliever, if the Holy Spirit isn't giving them faith for them to believe, they will not believe. They will continue to ask for signs. And that is the theme you will see throughout the Pharisees and the scribes' interaction with Jesus is the teacher, show us a sign. So we can talk about that for a long time, but let's move on to the text here. 
Jesus responds with this pretty blunt statement, you evil and adulterous generation. So he's saying, you are constantly looking for a sign. You have walked away. You've cheated on God. You have turned to idols. You have turned to something else. You have abandoned the God of Israel. You are an adulterous generation. And Jesus is describing his commentaries uh, with this term here that is often used by the old prophets, uh, as indicated in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So now Jesus is going to essentially shift directions for us. He's going to now say there will be a sign, but they won't believe it. And so he, he asserts that you evil and adulterous generation, you're always seeking a sign, but you won't recognize the sign that will actually come. The sign that will actually appear is the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is when Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is essentially just stating an ancient way of referring to any parts of a three-calendar day period. It does not refer to 24 hours or you know sunrise, sunset, or anything like that, but just any part of three-calendar days. So it could be Friday, it could be Saturday, and on Sunday. That's when Jesus died and rose from the grave. That is three days. So being in the belly of the fish... Three days and three nights is just a, an ancient reference to that period of time. It does not necessarily indicate uh, the appropriate or the, the, the current 24-hour day. And so I think sometimes it trips people up, especially with modern English translations. We should understand the context and the history behind the, the Greek that is used in Matthew and the time and the Hebrew that's used with Jonah, and both would essentially assert that it is three calendar days, any parts. And so that is what he's saying. He is re, he is citing a preview of his death, burial, and resurrection. And he's using Jonah as a marker for that. And so Jonah would have been a type of of Jesus in this instance when he is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah is acting as a type of Jesus, which is a wonderful topic of typology and a topic that I have often been fascinated with studying because in the Old Testament you get to see and read through all sorts of different types of things that God has promised. And we see most of them always referring to Jesus uh, the Old Testament would be a lesser version, obviously, of the greater good to come, which would have been uh, wrapped up in Jesus. So there is this you know, whole study of theology around types. And you can grab various books. Um, I believe, I forget his name, but his last name is Hamilton, wrote a really good book on typology. Do, do some research. Grab yourself a book. Read into it a little bit and, and really pick up on what it's um, you know, teaching you, if you would. So we've got this acknowledgement that Jesus is equating himself to Jonah. And he's telling these Pharisees and scribes that, like Jonah, he too will be in the belly of the earth. So he's equating the time in the fish to the time in the earth. And he's saying that this will take place. This will be the sign that you will see, but you will not believe it because you are a wicked, evil, and adulterous generation. And so this 
the standing point really is is quite interesting because of kind of how the story of Jonah unfolds. So uh, we're not going to read Jonah entirely, but if we just go back and kind of survey that story, God comes to him and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to them. And Jonah doesn't want to go. So he gets in a book and he heads to Tarshish. And then during that time on the boat, God sends this big storm and the people on the boat are freaking out because they don't know what to do. So they start throwing everything overboard and the storm doesn't cease. And they they start asking each other, you know, what, you know, who could have done this? And Jonah says, oh, it was me. And so they throw him overboard upon his request. And then he's swallowed up by a fish and spit out on land after three days. And guess what? He's on the shores of Nineveh. So he is begrudgingly goes into the town, preaches to them, gets angry still with God, even at the end of the story. And then the story just ends. But what we get out of that is this beautiful story of redemption for a people that hated Israel. The Ninevites were Assyrians. They were the sworn enemies to Israel. And so it's fascinating to see God working with Gentile nations, even through the Old Testament. It's not a very prevalent thing. It doesn't happen in every book. But we see that there are scatterings and remnants of that taking place. This generation of Ninevites will now essentially stand at judgment, as Jesus says at the very end of the passage, and they will condemn this generation. They saw the need for repentance. They saw the need to turn to the one and only God. And so in the story, the king hears this, and he, and he strips off his robes and puts on sackcloth and ash and fasts and turns to the one true God. That, to me, is probably the most profound piece of, of, of Scripture in the Old Testament. I just I, I absolutely love engaging in it because it really demonstrates the love and compassion that God has. And I think, too, it helps us take away from this kind of mindset that God in the New Testament, or God in the New Testament is different than the God of the Old. God in the Old is all wrath and vengefulness and hate and malice and yada, 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 whereas the God of the New Testament is all love and happiness. Well, it's the same God. It's the same God. The same God that shows mercy and compassion to the people of Nineveh shows mercy and compassion to us through Jesus Christ. And so the story of Jonah, again, it's very, very fascinating. It's just short books, four chapters. Go read it. It'll take you probably 20 minutes to get through the whole thing. It's very good. But you know what? When you read it, read it once through, and then go back and read it very meticulously and dwell on the verses because there is so much richness in that book. And, and I, I love preaching through the prophets. Jonah is probably one of my favorites. And uh, not because it's shorter, but because of just that, that equation that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 12, to the time and the fish to the time and the earth. And as we mentioned, it is not a three-calendar day and three-calendar nights it is any part of those three days would be considered in, in, 
and this ancient culture how they measure time. So any point, any time, any fraction of a minute on that in, in that kind of construct, you know, whether it's before dawn or at dusk or anything like that, any time it touches that, it would be considered a full day. So don't look into it and uh, into the into this story from our lens and our perspective and our calendar understanding of how days and nights work because the they didn't acknowledge that during the time of Jesus. So that's different there. And that's why context helps us to understand what in the world Jesus is saying. If we just took this passage and then took it in a you know literal modern day understanding of three days and three nights, and then we go to the to the crucifixion and resurrection story, we would say it doesn't line up. Jesus must have been lying, or something doesn't line up here. When if we actually understood the context, the historical buildup, and the measurement of all of that, we would see both of these stories line up perfectly. That Jesus was in the grave Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days, three nights, boom. That's, that's all you can. That's all you can say. And it's, uh, you know... A fascinating topic to study if you want to go back and look at like ancient Israel and, and study their understanding of time and that. Uh, this takes us even back to the creation accounts. In fact, uh, one of my papers towards the end of my time in seminary was to take a word from the Old Testament, a Hebrew word, and write a paper about it. And so I wrote um, a paper on the word day in Hebrew and off the top of my head now, I don't remember what the exact pronunciation of the Hebrew word was, but it was interesting because the more I studied this construct, the more I found that it was one word that cannot necessarily be defined by our current understanding. Yes, we know that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh he rested. Those we can understand, but other uses of the word day throughout the Old Testament have different implications. They have different meanings, different purposes. And so that's the interesting thing when we start to study the language between the Hebrew and the Greek, to the Latin, to all the other languages, English, German, all these others that came out. And when we start to see the translation and the, and, and the you know movement from Hebrew to English, it, it is not always a clean translation. And that's why sometimes when you read, especially like an ESV or an NASB, you're going to find sometimes that the words don't quite make sense. And because Hebrew and Greek aren't always words that directly translate word for word into English. So that's your little school lesson on languages. Again, I'm not a proficient uh, Hebrew and Greek reader. I, I know there are some great theologians modern day that can read it without problems. Um, it in the concept in the construct of the English church, most of my congregants really aren't too uh, desirable, if you would, uh, to to learn the languages. They they appreciate if I have. You know, a particular word that I know can be translated to either way. Uh, they know that 
I can sometimes use these in a sermon, and I'll research the words. I'll do my, my due diligence and all that, but I'm not going to take the time to, to spend saying, well, in the Hebrew or the Greek, this is the word, and this is what it means, and, you know, and, and make it more of an academic lesson when I'm preaching. That's not what a sermon is for. And I know that's going to step on probably some of you, the Reformed folk out there, but a sermon isn't a, a teaching lesson. It's not a historical lesson. It's not an academic lesson. Teaching is the preaching of law and gospel so the congregation can hear their sin and hear forgiveness. That is the purpose of a sermon. Again, I know that might anger a couple of you, and, and I know it has on, on Instagram when I make a statement similar to this, but a preaching of a sermon is not necessarily all about teaching it. Now, when I prepare a sermon, I do a blend of providing some contextual information. I talk about the text. I talk about what's going on and what is happening because it helps to draw the listener in. That, there's nothing wrong with that. I provide the exegetical approach to the text. But I don't just leave it there. I draw it forth into a, this is the sin being present in the text. This is the forgiveness that you can have by the text. That is how I construct a sermon. So anywho's. That is that, you know, we can, I can sit here and, and run down that rabbit hole all day long. But let's move on with the text. So the men of Nineveh will rise up with, uh, in judgment with this generation, and they'll condemn it, right? So we talked about that, that this, this generation of Ninevites, the men of Nineveh, will rise up in judgment. Now, that's not saying that they will be standing there next to Jesus on the day of judgment, but they will be used as a measurement to judge other people. Their repentance is what is going to determine whether the, this particular generation that Jesus is describing will, in fact, you know, be condemned or be saved. So it, it's not, like I said, it's not that the Ninevites, these men will be standing there uh, at the side of Jesus on the day of judgment. But their actions used when Jonah went there will be used to determine the measure of these folks that Jesus is talking about. And so here's an interesting note uh, in the Lutheran Study Bible on the men of Nineveh. It says, These Gentiles repented because of Jonah's preaching and on Judgment Day. They will condemn unbelievers for rejecting Jesus. So, again, I don't think it necessarily equates to them standing there, but it's that they're... Repentance will be used as a measure to those who have rejected Christ. So Jesus is obviously greater than Jonah. He is the greater prophet. He is the fulfillment of all things that Jonah could not have been. Uh, moving on to verse 40, 42 here, the queen of the south, this uh, the queen of Sheba, a Gentile, traveled great distances to hear Solomon's wisdom, 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. What she sought, a great king and sage, was passed by Jesus, the Messianic King, who will sit at the Father's right hand, as Colossians 3, 1 and Hebrews 12, 2 state. She will also condemn the contemporaries of Jesus at final judgment. So again, 
these people will probably be present. I don't think they'll be standing, you know, at the side of Jesus, but they'll be there, obviously, as everybody will be. But it is that their repentance and their longing and desirement will be used to condemn these nations. Their their commit their repentance, their desire to know God, their turning away from their false idols, their turning away from their their own selfish ambitions. And following Christ, that is what it will be used for those against those who reject Jesus. Notice, this isn't used to measure a, a believer's repentance. It's not used to measure the sheep. It is used to measure those who have rejected Jesus. And I think that is very crucial. And we've noticed how throughout the time here in Matthew that this type of preaching is different than what we hear in the mainstream church, especially when we went through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when we were very meticulous at taking apart the text there and acknowledging that this doesn't mean it's pointed towards a believer, but it's pointed to the unbeliever. So there's always that difference, the fine line in the sand, believers and unbelievers. So the people of Nineveh heard Jonah, the queen of Sheba saw Solomon, but greater than that prophet or that king is our Lord Jesus Christ. We are privileged to hear him and receive him in his word. Sometimes, like the unbelieving leaders, we seek signs of God's goodness and success, wealth, and health. One sign is sufficient for faith, the sign of Jonah. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this sign, we find peace, joy, hope. That is the greatest sign. That is the only sign we need. And if you believe in the resurrection, then you certainly believe in Jesus Christ. That is that is the whole premise to this story, is the foreshadowing of his pending doom, his pending death, but also his resurrection, his triumph over death. And that is a beautiful gospel right there, that Jesus Christ goes to the cross takes your sin, becomes sin, as Paul says, becomes a curse, hung to a tree, dies, buried, rises from the grave, ascends to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is another interesting little tidbit. It's not that he's only ever stationary to that position, but it means a place of authority. And that is what Jesus says in Matthew 28 after the resurrection. All authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. Go, therefore... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Baptize first, then you teach. And I love how people like to say, well, Peter in Acts chapter 2 said to repent and and be baptized. Yeah, but that's not a mathematical equation. You don't have to take the repentance as the first act. Repentance is turning away from unbelief to belief. And the construct happens inside of baptism when you are being baptized, you are being given faith, you are having God's word poured out upon you. (sighs) Anyways, there were another rabbit hole because, you know, I I just, I see it happen so often on social media that we get so confined into these preconceived notions of what the text is telling us. And it it goes beyond all things, whether it's baptism or, um, or, you know, the Lord's Supper or, a text like this, for instance, today, because I'm sure there's going to be people that would try to argue with what I've said on this show. But uh, that's that, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, there's, uh, 
I could go down these rabbit holes, but I'm going to save you the boredom. We're pretty close to the 30-minute mark, so I'm pretty happy with uh, how I built the show out. And I hope that you guys enjoy it. I'm still going to try and edit a little bit of this the, the sound issues that I'm having. And uh, so please bear with me as this is something that's still being a, a pain in the butt for me. I'm trying to figure it all out and understand why my garage band does not want to remove that echoey background, that tinny sound of my voice. So I'm hoping that this will uh, fix it. And again, you know, I've moved into a new office. Um, Well, I've rearranged my office. And so now I've combined my upstairs and downstairs office into one. And so my, my setup is different. And so I'm trying to move without squeaking my chair. My chair is a little squeaky. So you might catch some of that in the background. But I'm trying to, you know, continue to provide that semi-professional episode quality for you. So thanks again, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Uh, Today is Friday, which means Sunday's around the corner. Get to church. Hear the word preached. I hope you can partake in the sacraments. And that's that, ladies and gentlemen. Until next week, God bless and have a great weekend. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.